0: Today's episode is brought to you by public.com, an investing platform, which you'll be hearing more about later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. I am joined by Jeff Snyder, founder and host of Eurodollar University. Jeff, welcome back to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? I'm great, Jack. Thanks for having me back. I'm really looking forward to this. I'm really looking forward to this too, Jeff. You've been worrying about and, and warning about ongoings in the money market and, and the yield curve, and things are now, they've reached the the next level. And there's a particular idiosyncrasy that is very, very strange going on in the yield curve. So there's really not a better time and not a better guess than than you and, and right now. Tell us what is going on in the short-term interest rate market, why it's so strange and what you think it indicates.
1: Well, it's it's not just strange, Jack. As you know, it's it's insane right now. The last couple of days have been just completely crazy. But it's not just the last couple of days. We're sort of continuing on from what happened really from the middle of March forward as SVB and Signature and then Credit Suisse sort of unleashed um, a tidal wave of shrinking of collateral chains and other types of things, which have just surge in demand for the best quality financial collateral, which happens to be the shortest term treasury bills. And what we saw yesterday was just an epic, epic buying squeeze. Actually there was, I think two of them, one that began early in the morning, hit the three month treasury bill, usual scramble for collateral. You see the bill yields drop in the early morning hours, but then what has become a consistent pattern since mid-March, and I don't really have an explanation for this cause it was, this is something brand new. Um, during the U.S. regular session, which is usually when everything is all settled out and fine, ready to go, we've been seeing these absolute epic collateral runs, especially in the four-week Treasury bill, where the yield just falls off a cliff. And so yesterday, we got two of those. Like I said, we had one after the three-month bill, the regular pattern early in the morning, and then in the early morning of the U.S. regular session, we had a about a 20 basis point drop in the four-week Treasury bill yield, which already, I mean a couple basis points is enough to get your attention cuz bills bills are not supposed to trade all that much i mean there's not supposed to be a whole lot of volatility in these instruments so a couple basis points you're thinking okay something's going on here 20 is 20 is like 2008 territory and then not only did we get a 20 basis point drop in the bill yields early in the morning then the auctions came in the 4 week and 8 uh, four week and 8 week bill auctions just massive amounts of demand so it looked like the, the earlier morning secondary market squeeze in the bills triggered then an even bigger one at the auction. And it just, by at one point, I think the four-week Treasury bill yield was under 3.15%. So down roughly 60, 70 basis points on the day, which again, I mean, a couple of basis points is, is eye-opening. So what is 60 or 70? 60 or 70 is, like I said, it's something that's become more common since the middle of March. And it's something that we saw some uh, around 2008 too, so. The big drop in bill yields, which indicates there's massive amounts of intraday demand, and the
0: demand is extreme. You compare it to the three month Treasury yield, which is now yielding over five percent, or something like the the federal funds rate, which is in you know high four percent, a little bit less than five percent. So four point eight percent you can get just by you know, parking your your money. At the, the, the Fed for the reverse repo or IOER for Fed funds market that's you know, between other banks. But these are supposedly you your know, risk free markets. But then you have a one month Treasury bill trading over a hundred basis points. I think you know close to you know, at the at the low time in rates yesterday, 169 basis points below a comparable uh, you know short term swap or SOFR, Fed funds repo, all sorts of alternatives why is the market putting such a premium on treasuries what is so special about them and, and what does
1: it indicate to you well that's it's it can't be about the investment characteristics right because you're right jack you go through that menu of alternatives any rational human would say why would i want to own something that only returns about 3% or 3.2% or something like that when i can get almost exactly the same in fact even better in some case in some characteristics just by rolling over in repo, if I've got if I've got spare cash, I could just roll over GC repo, collateralized by a U.S. Treasury, zero risk, and get you know closer to three or four point eight percent. Why on earth would I ever accept even a couple basis points less than that? Let alone something like one hundred and fifty or one hundred and seventy, as you said. Obviously, there has to be some form of value, some kind of value in this specific instrument that has nothing to do with the interest rate characteristic, and of course. The answer to that question or that puzzle is it's Treasury bills, especially short term bills, are the, high, the the highest tier of the of financial collateral that's used throughout the money marketplace. Um, it is the best of the best collateral. And what you see oftentimes in periods of strain in these collateral streams in the collateral system is that participants in it get herded as Lower quality forms of collateral get rejected and revalued and all sorts of bad things. It leads to collateral calls, at least like some of these chains uh, collateral chains imploding, which means that essentially everybody gets herded into a narrower and narrower and narrower subset of the marketplace. And since treasury bills are the top part of it, uh, you have this tremendous rush of demand for the best quality collateral because there's other things going on besides the, what we can see in the T-bill rate.
0: Right, and let, let's put this chart up uh, right now. This is the spread between the one-month Treasury bill yield, which is now v- uh, very low, minus the Fed funds rate. And the Fed funds rate, you know, when they, the Federal Reserve talks about what the the rate they change, that is sort of the the target rate they change. And it is now deeply negative. That large red dot you can see trading about you know, 170 basis points at, at the peak yesterday, and it really hasn't reached this level since the summer of 2008. And you can see those tiny little red dots there. This is pretty special territory.
1: Yeah, I mean, just the rest of the charts. I mean, look at where the dots are lowest and they're tending to be lower. We correlate those with periods of general money market stress. I mean, look, 2020, you got that one there. Some stuff in 2018 and 2019, uh, we saw lots of strain then. And then, of course, the big one, as I mentioned earlier, and it's right there in your chart, We're seeing stuff in the money markets that we haven't seen really since 2008. Um, The stuff with everything that we see with Treasury bills now, the heightened demand for them as collateral, same thing happened, especially in early 2008 around Bear Stearns, and not just before Bear Stearns, but also after, because the Bear Stearns failure actually triggered a whole bunch of aftershocks and after effects, including this generalized scramble for collateral where market participants wanted to make sure that they had their hands on the best stuff because they didn't want to be the next Bear Stearns.
0: Right. And let's just explore the possibilities of you know, li- liquidity preference. Treasury bills are preferable. What are the risks of, let's say, a, a repo trans- entering into repo transaction? You know, so for something like that, that you you, you get 4.9% on. Or the Fed funds rate, or the interest on excess reserves for banks, the reverse repo facility, which money market funds now have access to, as well as treasury bills. What's so wrong about getting, uh, you know, close to five percent? What are the fears there? You know, because if 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 I can get five percent here, but or I can get uh, you know you know less than four percent, I in order to choose the lower yielding option, I
1: must have some sort of reason. Why? What what is that reason? Oh, it's even more extreme than that, Jack. Before we get to the reason, I mean, you look at the Treasury bill auctions that have been conducted since mid-March. And in the four-week bill auction for the last six have produced zero percent low yields. In other words, some at least 5% of those auctions, 5% of those who were bidding at the auction and were awarded the bid said, I will pay the most, the highest price I can possibly pay just so that I get my hands on these treasury. I will accept zero return literally zero <laughs> nominally zero return so i have these treasury bills so and the reason is because it's not about investments it's not about choosing a, a variety of investments for you know do i want to put it in gc repo do i want to put it into uh, the, the reverse repo it's about specifically making sure that you get your hands on that treasury bill instrument you have to have that instrument in your portfolio in your on the asset side of your balance sheet in order to have that collateral available in case you need it, so it's 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 again it's not an investment consideration. You have to look at these things as sort of balance sheet tools. And at times of strain like this, the value of those tools just goes through the roof. And because of that, you're willing to pay an extraordinary premium because you have to have these tools. Otherwise, you risk not being able to get to stay in business. And you you talk about a collateral,
0: so treasury bill you can buy it for you know 97 90, depending on the, the term wherever uh th- th- um that that can be pledged as collateral for a, a loan but what about parking it uh, something in a reverse repo facility or basically having cash like it, why are the other things not collateral
1: cuz collateral so, you know, is fungible <laughs> it's okay. fungible in a way that cash never is i mean you can think about it, the easiest way to think about it is if you're a money dealer you want to have as you want to have as many spare. You want to have the best quality collateral in your inventory because you'll be able to, to lend it out and relend it uh, to it, 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 those in the marketplace who are desperate to get their hands on it. Because if you're using lower quality collateral and that's being rejected, you only got you're getting fewer and fewer options. So the value of the 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 higher quality collateral has to go up because it's in such high demand when there's less and less collateral that's available or acceptable on the best kind of terms uh, during these these sorts of periods. That's why we associate these low bill yields, uh, high bill prices with mm-hmm. these periods like 2008 or 2020 associated with massive uh, mon- monetary dysfunction. Because in one sense, these are all about collateral squeezes or collateral shortages.
0: Right. And how is it possible that there's a collateral shortage out, out there, Jeff, given The immense amount of U.S. government debt that has been issued, given all this money floating around there, which there is a lot of money floating around, how is there a
1: collateral shortage? There's always. I mean, this is the hardest thing to get your mind around because it sounds like you know the government has expanded the amount of U.S. Treasuries, so there should be plenty of U.S. Treasuries for everybody to use. But the fact is, number one, not all U.S. Treasuries trade. We only have we have the distinction between on the run and off the run, and off the run. That was a big problem in March 2020, as we saw. But either way, so we have a smaller subset that's actually liquid. And remember, this is the, the characteristic that repo counterparties prize above, or prioritize above everything else. Because if you and I, Jack, get involved in a repo transaction where you're pledging cash and I'm pledging collateral, some kind of collateral, um, all you care about is the liquidity characteristics of the collateral. Because if I default tomorrow, you have to sell the asset. And so you have to be absolutely 100 percent assured that tomorrow, if I have to sell that asset, I'm going to be able to get all my money back. Otherwise, you don't want to do the transaction because these are supposed to be as close to risk free as possible. So everything comes down to the liquidity characteristics. But the truth of the matter is we have this immense, enormous global monetary system denominated in U.S. dollars primarily, and there just isn't enough collateral to go around. Um, for example, if you're a hedge fund, you want to invest in risky securities because you want to you want to enhance your return. You want to leverage up those returns because trading U.S. treasures, you're not going to make enough money. You're not going to stay in business. So you invest in a bunch of low quality assets, some junk bonds, let's say, probably emerging market junk bonds. They have high levels of return. And in order for you to leverage that that uh, leverage that opportunity, you want to borrow the, the you want to fund these transactions in the repo market. But if you go in the repo market with these junk bonds, the repo market's not going to accept your collateral at the best terms. You're not going to get the most leverage that you can possibly get. So what you end up doing is you take these junk bonds and you go to a money dealer and say, I would like to swap these junk bonds for U.S. treasuries. And the dealer will say, I don't have any U.S. treasuries, but I know somebody who does. It's usually an insurance company or a pension fund who has a portfolio of, these these low these uh, risk free assets usually government bonds that they're only too willing to lend out for a, a small spread so essentially you have your junk bonds the dealer borrows us treasuries from a pension fund or insurance company y'all get together and the next thing you know you're in the repo market with us treasuries that technically belong to you but actually belong to somebody else so we're already multiplying collateral and then of course these transactions get even more and more complicated as we go so the the upshot here is that it's never as easy as you think it is. It's not straightforward as you think it is. It's not like it's not like parties in the repo market have collateral; they post it, and it's every and everything's one to one. You have this constant churn of reusing and repledging, and occasionally rehypothecation, which I know people deny that it happens, but we know it does. So there is essentially a collateral multiplier. How many times a piece of collateral might be reused? means that a single U.S. Treasury bond might be supporting multiples of these, these uh, secured financing trades. And it's not just repo. It's not just straight cash. You also have to keep in mind derivatives, which these days is probably more important and more likely to be the cause of the problem than the repo market is. So we have multiples of good quality collateral that it's getting reused. We've got multiples of bad quality collateral gets reused and just a small reevaluation and revaluation and the bad collateral because it's multiplied can lead to a much larger consequence because the multiplier effect shrinks more than just a single, single issue or whatever it may be. And so you have this this systemic scramble for collateral where just a little bit of revaluation, of some of that junk triggers this vast need to replace it with good quality collateral in these reuse and repledge chains. As a bank, you, you want to own assets. There's securities
0: that has the risks all the way from, you know, very short term treasuries, junk bonds, equities. And then there's forms of cash, uh, you know, cash like securities are, are those treasuries. But um, with the cash, there's deposits at other banks. Uh, which are the liabilities of them, your your asset, as well as deposits at the Fed, which are called reserves. Tell us about those three categories of assets. What are the sort of advantages and disadvantages of them? And why isn't there sort of a scramble to cash? i would I would think that if if you know everything's uh, uh, going to hell, so to speak, tr- even treasuries wouldn't be worth that much because everyone wants to scramble for cash.
1: Well there's always you know banks have enormous uh, they have quite a lot of alternatives to manage both the asset side of their balance sheet as well as the liability side of the balance sheet that's really what we're talking about here secured financing transactions are a method of liability management and it's an effective one um and it's, it it's an it's a very complicated one so individual banks will make individual choices based on what whatever liquidity parameters they're facing with. Sometimes that means you want to hold central bank reserves. Um, in, the, in the pre-crisis era where reserves were restricted and, and uh, there weren't a lot of them, that meant that there was a robust market for reserves. Nowadays, there really isn't because everybody has access to central bank reserves or some way to get them. But central bank reserves have a very limited narrow use. In a lot of cases, it's just I don't want to do anything. I just want to do nothing. I'll just hold liquidity in central bank reserves. It's an alternative to do that. Uh, as you said, there's other forms of cash, including deposits with other banks, especially other dealers, which give you a little bit more flexibility in the things that you can do because the dealer will be able to multiply some of your some of your some of the things that you might want to do, depending on what it is you want to do. And then, of course, there's the secured financing transactions, which gets you into derivatives and other types of opp- opportunities there. And we have to, I mean, derivative transactions like a currency swap, even though it's a derivative, even though it doesn't really go on a balance sheet, it is every bit this—it uh, uh, is every bit like a monetary or credit transaction too. So it depends on the balance sheet constraints and the balance sheet parameters that individual institutions, and they don't have to be banks either. It could be non-banks too. What is it they're trying to do at any given moment in time? And as going back to the chart that you showed, uh, Jack, what we see is that during these specific periods, we understand that more and more of these financial, market, or financial participants are being forced to do the same things at the same times because of the systemic conditions. They're being forced to choose, a, a high, pay high levels of premiums for treasury bills, for instance, when there's problems in the collateral marketplace. So they can't replace those problems in the collateral marketplace with something like, for example, central bank cash. Because central bank cash, the reserves, or as they call them in Canada, settlement balances, they have a very narrow use. Um, They can't be used in the wider marketplace except for, you know, if you're settling a transaction in Fedwire or something like that. So it really depends on what's going on in the individual institutions and, of course, the systemic properties of the the system at any given time that is forcing – that many of these individual institutions are forced to respond to. So, Jeff, we're looking at this chart. I, I gotta be
0: honest it doesn't look great okay it doesn't it doesn't look great the last time this happened no. was 2008 it doesn't
1: look great what do you think are the consequences of this yeah the 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 term that we want to use here is credit crunch because what happens is when financial firms and even non-financial firms that are caught up in these wholesale market difficulties what they decide to do is what I call the lessons of Bear Stearns, which was after Bear Stearns, that didn't represent a success. That represented a systemic rupture, which caused the entire system to stop and say, whoa, wait a minute here. We just had a major failure when we didn't think a failure was really possible. What that means is I can't really depend on the wholesale market system. I can't can't depend on the Fed. There really isn't a backstop. I'm kind of alone out here. And I'm alone out here. And there's all sorts of risks that I didn't appreciate yesterday. Suddenly, Bear Stearns has focused everyone on the risk and the liquidity risk and the credit risk and everything else, the systemic weaknesses. So what I need to do is I need to build up my liquidity cushion. And one of the ways I build up my liquidity cushion is make sure I have collateral available just in case, you know, JP Morgan in the old days, now it's a Bank of New York Mellon, but in case the tripartite repo custodian knocks on my door and says, I need you to post more collateral. So you build a cash cushion, you build a collateral cushion, which only makes sense, Right. If you're concerned about these kinds of things, you want to have a you want to have that kind of liquidity and insurance if something else continues to go wrong. That's the first thing you do. The second thing you do is you start looking at your assets in your portfolio and think, do I really want to own all these? Do I really want to be as risky as I was yesterday because look what happened to this other firm that wasn't really all that risky. So I start de-risking my portfolio, which includes not just, you know, selling some of the more risky stuff favoring some of the more safe instruments. But it also means for depository institutions, I don't want to lend as much. I'm not sure I want to lend as much or to, this, to the as a wider variety of borrowers as I was thinking about yesterday. So I'm going to start cutting back on the things I do in the real economy, loans that I make, securities that I buy. So you've got de-risking, which leads to, of course, the credit crunch. And the third thing you do is you, you hedge you hedge the hell out of what positions you're left holding, especially if you're left with, you know, if you have a lot of risky assets that are underwater, you can't sell them without creating paper losses, and therefore that leads all sorts of bad consequences, as we saw with Silicon Valley Bank. So you hedge, you hedge, you hedge, you hedge, and that's something that we saw last month in extreme too, massive swings in hedging instruments. So the lessons of Bear Stearns apply not just to March of 2008, but as I think we're seeing already March of 2023 because we saw, as I said, the hedging that was, that was obvious and immediate everywhere. We've gotten some, I mean, obviously we're talking about treasury bills, building collateral cushions, those types of things. So I think that part is, we can see enough of that too. Also, we got the H8 data from the federal reserve and we'll get that updated uh, today, I believe for last week or this week, um, where you can see banks all across the U S system, really build built a huge cash cushion, um, some of that borrowing from the Fed, the FHLB, some of the other things that they did. And you also have to believe that outside the United States in US dollars, the same thing was going on. But the real big thing as far as the economy is concerned is whether that leads to a severe enough de-risking in terms of loans and uh, just buying securities that it creates the credit crunch that happened in 2008. Or, you know, Even a small credit crunch can turn into a really big problem, especially in an economy that is highly dependent upon the constant circulation and introduction of credit. If you've been listening to Forward Guidance, you probably know that treasury yields have been
0: surging. Right now, you can get a 5.1% yield on your cash with treasury bills. That's pretty good. It's even better than what you can get with a traditional high-yield savings account. So owning U.S. Treasuries is great, but buying them is super complicated, or at least it was. You used to have to go to a bank or navigate a government website that looked like it was designed in the 90s. Thankfully, investing platform Public.com has changed all that with the launch of treasury accounts. Now you can move your cash into U.S. Treasuries right from your phone. And you can do it with the flexibility of a bank account. There are no minimum hold periods or settlement delays. In other words, you can access your cash whenever you want. And the best part is that because it's government-backed treasury bills, it's an incredibly safe place to park your cash. Public.com will even automatically reinvest your treasury bills at maturity so you don't have to do anything to continue growing your yield. So to get that 5.1% yield on your cash, go to public.com forwardguidance to move your cash into a treasury account today. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. And what are you seeing there, Jeff? We've just had a slew of big banks, as well as some regional banks, reporting. And I'd say the worst of my fears that I had on March on the deposit fronts of of, of bank runs, uh, my my fears have been allayed. Actually, it actually looks pretty good. I mean, we'll we'll see going forward. And then on loans, again, you're comparing, you know, March 31st to December 31st, and you, you're not really getting that that March uh, sort of out out in in isolation. So there are other stories to be had, and in particular the beige book with well, jeff I'll, I'll be honest i don't read the beige book you know too often it's it's not terribly interesting but i actually did read this one and i actually got pretty engrossed because <laughs> there were a lot of fascinating quotes about credit deterioration and banks are banks are pulling lending banks are worried about uh, commercial mortgage backed securities and not only worries but it's already happened uh, for the for the month of march so yeah just just elaborate on, on sort of the, the credit crunch uh, that, that you see
1: yeah, a lot of the quarterly statistics you're not going to get enough granularity about what happened recently. You can look at the weekly H8, which was eye-opening. And H8, by the way, is the Federal Reserve's uh, uh, it's a, it's a report on what commercial banks, the entire commercial banking system, tells the Federal Reserve it's up to. And there was a lot of stuff in there, especially the final two weeks of March, where we saw a massive contraction in lending. I think it was a little about 105, 110 billion dollars, which is I mean, again, that's another thing that shows up that's comparable to something like 2008. Bank credit overall restricted by, I think, contracted by a couple hundred billion, which uh, we had a couple of weeks that were just historic levels of contraction. Some of that might have been related to transfers of assets from Silicon Valley Bank and Signature into federal, ha- federal government hands of receivership. So, I mean, but either way, um, bank credit contracted and nobody else was out there extending credit to make up for it. So systemically, we had a big credit shock, which, as you alluded to, now we're hearing we're hearing anecdotes and stories, which is really what the beige book is. That's why know, you don't really read this thing except in periods like this because the beige book is nothing more than stories that regional banks, staffs, and presidents choose to put into this thing. So it's basi- basically they're curating all the stories they want you to hear from their local contacts. And what you hear in the in the uh, April beige book, the one that was put out just a couple of days ago, is exactly what you said, Jack. All of a sudden they're talking about liquidity, tightening credit standards, all these things looking forward, not looking backward at what happened, saying, you know, it it really does sound like the lessons of Bear Stearns I just laid out. That's what you hear in the throughout the beige book. Um, And interesting and interestingly enough. It was the san francisco branch that probably had the harshest assessment of credit conditions because that's where the silicon valley bank uh, epicenter was and what they basically said was credit is already in the process of contracting and so maybe we don't see it in the current statistics because it takes a while for these things to filter through but we may see something like that happen early on in april maybe later maybe throughout the full month of april um, and it won't be. It won't be the same everywhere. So it'll be. Some banks will take it as, yeah, we need to really, we need to really take these lessons to heart. Some banks, some of the bigger banks that have been the beneficiary of the deposit, the wave of migration deposits, they might say now's a perfect time to take risk. As you mentioned, J.P. Morgan and some of the other bigger banks, um, maybe they'll offset the credit crunch to some extent. We certainly hope they do. Um, I'm not holding my breath on it, but. You know, it, it's always a complex thing, but as you mentioned, we're seeing the liquidity problems, which just simply heighten the reminder that you need to be defensive in these periods and defensive for the for the economy overall, defensive, by the, defensive measures taken by banks, that's pro-cyclical. So if we already have a struggling economy and then you introduce a credit crunch on top of it, it can turn a... a somewhat a, maybe a mild It can turn a downturn into a recession. It can turn a mild recession into something much bigger. So we'll see how that plays out. But the initial, initial aftermath of March, I mean, look at treasury bills, look at the yield curve, look at what banks are saying. It, you just get this, uh, maybe this does turn out to be uh, what we hope it doesn't.
0: Right. And how do you make sense of in October, The big bank CEOs were saying a storm is coming. That's what Jamie Dimon said. And the Fed was saying everything's fine. Now, the (laughs) Federal Reserve staff in the minutes are saying we expect a recession that will be mild. And in the the beige book, it's uh, looking quite grim. And that comes from the Federal Reserve. However, the big banks, they seem pretty sanguine.
1: How do you make sense of that? because they were they ended up being on the on the good end of this thing right the big banks are saying we think everything's fine because for them their everything is fine that's the key difference yeah. here the houses went a, up there's, there's Morgan, yeah. several key differences between now and 2008 but that's one of the key differences in 2008 it was the big dealer banks who were under the spotlight they're the ones who are who are under the most pressure now they're the ones saying we can step back and just Look at everything from above and say this is not going to be a big deal for us. It might be a big deal for everyone else, but there's also the incentive here where the big banks don't want to be dragged into this thing, so they have every incentive to say this is no big deal because we don't want to be dragged into it. We want to we want to stay out of it. We're perfectly fine. Don't even take a, don't even question our balance sheet at all. We're good here. Um, whereas the Fed. The Fed, I mean, the Fed always gets it wrong. The Fed always has to react to events. And you always have to wonder, why don't you people see these things coming? Why don't you ever have, why don't you ever do something about it before it happens? Why do you always have to create a new tool after all the old tools fail failed to stem the crisis? So in one sense, it's good that the Fed is finally admitting that there's, hey, you know, there's there's a possibility of a recession here coming up, and it could get much worse Depending upon how this credit crunch develops, if it goes the wrong way, it could get really bad really quickly, and we'll do our best to try to mitigate the fallout. But uh, as far as actually getting ourselves out of, or, or as far as you know, what the markets are pricing—that's uh, why doesn't the Fed ever take into account yield curves and curves like that instead of always going, always falling back on their DSGE econometric models, which never see these things coming. So. In one sense, that's one reason why we're seeing these, uh, you know, banks billing the liquidity cushions and de-risking because they realize you can't count on the Fed to bail you out because by the times, by the time the Fed realizes it needs to do something, it's already too late. And that's one of the, one of the factors that you have to keep in mind in the banking system is that, again, like in 2008, participants realize they're, they're, they're really isolated and alone out there.
0: It's been interesting to see the Federal Reserve you know, framework, Jay Powell talking about, oh, in 2023, we're going to have slow growth to <laughs> 2023. We're going to have very slow growth. And now the FOMC, uh, not the FOMC, the Federal Reserve staff is expe- you know, expecting a mild recession in 2023. So slow growth to very slow growth to mild recession. What do you think about that term mild to me, Jeff? T- to me, it does seem plausible. Yeah, okay. So things will slow down a, l- a little bit. Um, you know, the unemployment rate will go up, spending will go down, borrowing will go down, defaults will go down. But but then you know, it will be what they call a mid-cycle slowdown. And thankfully, inflation, will, you know, consumer price inflation will fall down as well. Where,
1: if you disagree with that, why? I disagree with it because it doesn't take into account the real financial fallout. And again, to be fair, in, uh, the Fed said, you know, our base case. The staff said, as you point out, Jack. Our base case is a mild recession, which I mean, it, it's not good. Let's be honest about it. It's not a good thing. It, but it's 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 certainly more palatable than the alternative, which they also talked about in their last meeting minutes, which is if all of the things that the market is has been pricing for months actually do play out, we won't get a mild recession. Because they even said in the minutes that they basically point blank stated that uh, recessions and downturns that, that happen at the same time as financial market difficulties and credit crunches lead to the most severe cases. So what the Fed actually said, they actually planted the seed for that. They said, well, as you, we weren't expecting a recession. We were expecting a slowdown. But now we're thinking that it'll be a mild recession and hopefully nothing more than that. But by the way, just keep in mind here, if things do continue to get worse, it won't be a mild recession. So what's actually happened here is the Fed is slowly incrementally progressing toward the same position that the markets have been in for quite some time, really going back to last fall, uh, September and October, when inversions really exploded, the near term forward spread inverted, Uh, the markets were saying, now, this is not going to be a slowdown. The chances of a more than mild recession are exceptionally high. And everything that has happened over the, the months since then have been exactly what the markets have been predicting. If you're thinking about all the things that could happen that would lead the economy into a more than mild recession, a lot of those things did happen already. And here we are in April and the markets are saying, we aren't done yet. This is not a mild recession. This is not just a, a minor slowdown or a nuisance that's going to help Jay Powell get consumer prices down to where he would like them. This is something that's going to cause the Federal Reserve to completely turn around and start cutting rates rapidly like they did in 2008. And again, we see that all over the marketplace. We see that all over the monetary system where everything that would that would point in the same direction of the market market case continues to happen over and over again. So, the Fed is getting closer and closer and closer to where the markets have been all along because that's the way the real the real economy, the real market system is progressing too.
0: How many more uh Fed hikes do you think the the Federal Reserve has sort of in its in its chamber? I, I think it may be just one in May and then
1: done. Yeah, and I don't think the one in May is a done deal either. I think they're there is a split on the Federal Reserve. We saw that in the minutes, too. And yes, the minutes are, you know, you can't put too much stock in those, just like the Beige Book. But it was interesting how it how it said, and there was, of course, that, that Wall Street Journal article from obviously leaked sources who wanted that out there, that the Fed was very close to pausing in March. And then, uh, yes, there are still hawks like Christopher Waller and others who are saying, no, no, no. We we successfully navigated the stuff in March. Inflation is still our biggest risk. The CPIs aren't down nearly as much, or the PCE deflators, not down nearly as much as we'd like them. So there are those who are hawks. That, I mean, the hawk versus dove camps are probably as starkly different as they have been in, in quite some time. So I think, you know, the hawks are going to have to make a really uh, compelling case just for a rate hike in May. And then after that, I, I mean... um, Depending on what happens, but even if nothing else happens, I think you'll see the case more and more be made that we've done enough. Now we need to we need to pause. We need to reassess the economic consequences of everything. We need to see what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, I do think they pay attention to the markets, um, not just uh, treasury bills, but uh, other other parts of the market. And I think it is, in some sense, unnerving to them. They do realize that the. The uh, the balance of events have moved closer to the markets than to their position. So I really think that whatever happens in May uh, after that, we're into the pause and then eventually the pivot.
0: Jeff, you for a long time have been a quite a stern critic of new central bank policies such as quantitative easing in order to affect economic but non-banking economic uh, uh, factors such as growth and inflation. Uh, and that is a you know, pretty severe mission creep from where the Federal Reserve started, was to uh, um, uh, you know stave off banking panics. What the Federal Reserve did in uh, March of this year, uh, where banks used its discount window, but also the newly rolled out Bank Term Funding Program uh, (BTFP), which allowed banks to secure funding for up to one year, pledging their collateral at par. Talk about talk about collateral. Uh, that seems to be relatively close to what the Federal Reserve was started to, to do, you know, in in, in nineteen thirteen. How would you uh, uh, judge the Federal Reserve's actions? How successful were they in sort of fighting the the, the banking uh,
1: panic? And yeah, what do you what do you see going forward? Yeah, I mean that's in one sense that's that's really what they will they'll tell you is that that's that's their job is yeah we don't really want to manage the economy, but Congress made us. That's what Jay Powell would say, because they say, you know, we've got, they actually have three mandates, not two. The third mandate is actually interest rates, but they never talk about it because they say, if we get employment and inflation, right, then interest rates will take care of themselves, which obviously that's not the case, but um, you're right. They would say that, you know, we want to be a central bank, but we don't really know how to be a central bank in this modern system where money has evolved so so dramatically that we can't even, we can't even figure out, we can't even define what money is, And so um, you also hear them talk about how they've become a market of last resort rather than lended of last resort. But um, that's really about trying to when we when we enter these these periods where the monetary system and the banking system gets itself into trouble, it's about breaking the circuit between. You know, the vicious cycle of illiquidity leading to fire sales, which leads to more illiquidity than fire sales and round and round we go, then that harms the economy, which threatens the employment mandate and inflation mandate. So they're trying to step back from, you know, hope, we hope that they learned from the 2008 crisis. We know they really didn't, understanding that there is a direct relationship between problems in the monetary system and problems in the economy. Now, Congress has mandated them do something about the economy. They're trying desperately to figure out how to do that. How do we how do we connect problems in the monetary system with problems in the economy? How do we interrupt problems in the monetary system from becoming problems in the economy? And that's why they have to keep experimenting with all these new things like quantitative easing. Now we've got the BTFP. Um, There's also, you know, March 2020, they came up with something called FEMA. FEMA was actually used this past March. Uh, there was about $60 billion used there. It's down to, I think, $20 billion as of this week. So they keep constantly trying to figure out ways, how do we keep these monetary events from spilling over into the real economy? And as we keep seeing, the monetary events keep happening and they keep spilling over into the real economy. So I don't think the Federal Reserve has been all that effective at all. And it really, dep- I mean, what they say is, well, we kept it from being worse, which is one of those, you know, unfalsifiable claims that you can, I mean, you can never prove a counterfactual anyway. Right. So they say, well, if we hadn't done this, it would have been so catastrophic, we'd be all back in the Stone Age. I mean, that's not really a, a valid argument, but that's, it's a recognizing the fact that we still have these problems, monetary system problems become real economy problems, and those have not changed. And I think that's what we're really talking about right here. Is that we've got the monetary system problems we've had them for quite some time but now everybody knows that we have them because now we've had these bank failures which have gotten people talking about banking so we know there's monetary problems we're sort of waiting to see if there are economic problems when the markets are saying there is going to be lots of economic problems
0: and uh how would you uh estimate the cause of the fall of, of silicon valley Bank? key to, to that was the very flighty deposit base the fact that you know they didn't have enough capital or, um but 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 really at the, the heart of it was these securities treasuries but mainly mortgage-backed securities that were you know parked on the held to maturity book that they were valuing still at hundred dollars even though if they were to sell them on the market they would have gotten severely less money than that do how much do you attribute the Federal Reserve's rate hikes to uh, the the really the, the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, given that if interest rates were still at zero, those mortgage-backed securities would be still be quite valuable.
1: Yeah, I don't think that was really the issue here. That was sort of the last last link in the chain of events. We got to remember what we're really talking about here is is the distortions that the government really created in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. That's really, I mean, Silicon Valley is probably a case study in those distortions because the government threw a bunch of cash at the economy. And one of the biggest beneficiaries of that was banks, especially regional banks, who suddenly were flooded with these deposits. And especially that the the Silicon Valley Bank was flooded, not with just deposits, but sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley when the stock market started to go crazy, they got flooded with even more deposits. So we had this massive one time distortion, not just in the economy, but in the banking system, too. And over the last couple of years, lo and behold, those deposits, that cash began to migrate to other parts of the economy because it wasn't being recirculated in the way it would organically. So Silicon Valley Bank made huge errors in thinking that one time flush of depo- that windfall of deposits um, a couple of years ago was going to be a permanent uh, permanent um, underlying back background that they could base their entire portfolios on. So as Cash began to migrate, not just from Silicon Valley Bank, but regional banks in general. Um, As customers, you know, these startup firms that Silicon Valley Bank was lending to used more cash than they were anticipating because they were not paying off. The economy was not performing the way they thought. So the original sin here, for lack of a better term, was the 2020 distortion and then the cash migration that then triggered all of these liquidity measures, which people began to notice, which then triggered the deposit flight, which finally triggered Silicon Valley Bank saying, we're losing so many deposits, we have to sell assets, but we're going to end up selling assets that are underwater, which is the last thing anyone wants to do. Again, lessons of Bear Stearns. Um, The more interesting question to me isn't that, it's why didn't they start pooling together loans and swapping them for collateral and borrowing funds in wholesale? Why didn't they go to the Fed's discount window? Why didn't they do a whole bunch of things that they could have done to remain in business? That's really the question here. And I think that's maybe the question that a lot of the markets are starting to ask, not just of you know, its peers, but other banks too. What's wrong with your asset base that you can't do some of these things that banks normally would do when the environment's really good? So Silicon Valley Bank, to me, is a microcosm of how we're going to end up paying for all those distortions from a couple of years ago. Because really all the government did was sort of kick the can down the road and make a huge mess on the way that we now have to sort of try to to navigate and clean up. You're
0: absolutely right, Jeff, that there was a huge uh, influx of deposits. I think they actually tripled or close to tripled at Silicon Valley Bank, which is for a bank is really ridiculous uh, over the course of two years. Um, And then the companies that were uh, had deposits for them many of them were venture capital fundings what is the you know typical of most venture capital companies or companies you know funded by uh venture capital early stage companies they spend more than they make because cash burn you know, yeah absolutely. And when yeah when interest rates are at zero and uh, you know money's slosh around the system the, the founders are calling them up saying hey great quarter but uh next quarter try and lose more money you know because <laughs> we want to grow as, as fast as possible yeah. uh you know i i might ask you a question a little plumbing question which is do you think that quantitative easing had something to do with the influx of deposits? The central bank, you know, and I'm just, I know this and I want to say for the audience as a fact, the Federal Reserve does not print deposits. They print reserves, which are the assets of commercial banks, the liability of the Fed. Commercial banks print deposits, which are the liabilities of commercial banks, the assets of companies and, and individuals. However you look at that March 2020 chart of the Fed's balance sheet and then M2. When people talk about money supply and you see a chart on Twitter for people listening, it's probably
1: M2. They do seem pretty correlated. Yeah, the one time they were, right? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they're not really correlated all that much. Like you said, you know, the quantitative easing to me, though, that, that really didn't play much of a role. That's more of an accounting issue than anything. And it's really the issue with M2 and, and the Federal Reserve Bank Reserves, as we talked about earlier, is that they're a narrow form of money and it's really what what happens in response to it. So the question is, did quantitative easing trigger the deposit creation or was it the federal government's, uh, you know, the federal government's essentially helicopter payments? Um, and I think that was the more effective, more the more blameworthy distortion here is that the federal government got involved uh, in, the, in the monetary system and the economy for reasons that had nothing to do with pure economics. I mean, small economics.
0: And Jeff, was that money printing by the fiscal government helicopter? Was that money printing?
1: I wouldn't consider it money printing. I consider it redistribution. Um, so the federal government borrowed funds from the treasury market. Uh, maybe banks created money on their own to, to pay for those treasuries. But essentially, it was a redistribution because that's what the federal government really does, but the Fed bought a lot of those treasuries so yeah so,
0: so uh, the government you know, they, the okay the Treasury they borrowed from JP. Morgan,
1: you know, they issued bills bought by JP Morgan, but the Federal Reserve bought those treasuries. Some of them, yes, yeah, yeah. The, to me that's, a, that's an unimportant distinction because whether the Fed bought them or not, I think they would have been issued either way. so how they where they ended up, who actually owned them out once they were created that, to me that's just academic uh, because they were going to be created anyway. So then, once that happened, the government does what it always does, which is redistribute for all the worst reasons. And in this case, they just threw as much cash as they could at the, at the system, hoping that it wouldn't, uh, hoping it would help um, from the for the economy that was completely shut down. But you know, there's arguments to made to be made about that, whether it is a moral case or whatever else. But what we do know happened is it was a huge distortion, and a huge distortion that didn't just go away. And as you said, with Silicon Valley Bank. You know, Silicon Valley Bank got hit with this huge windfall of deposits. And yes, they realized that, you know, their customers were going to run through this cash. There's a significant cash burn. But what they were expecting is that new cash would come in from st- stock uh, stock IPOs and other things that would replace old cash these, these uh, companies were were uh, running through. So essentially, they fooled themselves into believing this one-time distortion was represented a permanent shift in their business fortunes. And so Silicon Valley Bank is not unique in that perspective. Lots of other banks, as well as businesses, saw this massive distortion and said, this is permanent. This is a new permanent plateau of prosperity for me and all the people that I can see. And they started acting as if that was the case, when it wasn't the case. And over the last year and a half or so, we're starting to see reality intrude, which is then interrupting all of these dreams and hopes and really bad ideas. Enforcing a very it's forcing a reckoning for a system that needs to come to terms with that massive distortion from a couple of years ago. You can't just you can't just throw everything like that out of whack and just expect everything to go fine.
0: Did the banks take too much interest rate risk in in 2020, 2021, buying all these you know mortgage-backed securities and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made for that because I mean, but then again, what else were they gonna do? (laughs) I mean, at the time that's that's what the market offered. And really, I don't think there's a whole lot of risk to those either because you just put them in your in your bank book and hold them to maturity. And you get, Yes, you don't get as much of a return. Your net interest margin suffers, those kinds of things. It's not great for you to be a bank, but it doesn't put you out of business. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with holding a, a U.S. Treasury to maturity. It's when you're forced to sell it. That's when the that's when the issue becomes and that's when the issue becomes real is when you you take a security that's underwater for any reason. doesn't really matter what it is. And the market doesn't care. The market's ruthless. If you're selling a security that's underwater for any reason, creating a loss on your balance sheet or in your income statement that goes to the balance sheet is, is erosion in capital, that creates a problem for you. And so the issue is not the security you're selling. It's why are you being forced to sell the security? You're not managing your liabilities and liquidity that you're leaving yourself exposed. And that, to me that's the more interesting part of Silicon Valley Bank, not what they sold, but why they felt they had to sell it. And of course we know, I mean, yes, it was, the the obvious answer is the deposit flight, but why didn't they take advantage of all the wholesale opportunities that they could have had or should have had to at least, you know, stem the tide of their, you know, avoid the la- the worst-case scenario of selling their assets. And I mean, one of the answers could be they were just that bad at being bank managers. They sold these assets not realizing it was their own death warrant. That could have been the issue here. But I think there's more at play here than that. And I think there are more banks out there that are worried, that are saying, I don't want to have to sell these securities because if I do, it's going to just trigger a worse deposit flight. So they're building up their cash cushions. They're de-risking. They're doing all the other things that that Silicon Valley Bank should have done and probably wished it would have done ahead of time, and that's really we get into the pro cyclical stuff and the, the credit crunch,
0: right? Yeah, so on the, the credit crunch, uh, I've seen you use the term deflationary money. What do you mean by that? Uh, do we have deflationary money now? Did we have deflationary money in uh, last year in 2022? You know, with the caveat that uh, you know, it's consumer price prices rose dramatically, which you know, people call inflation. And there's monetary inflation, which you know, my, I guess, informal definition, I I'm wrong, correct me, is bank credit. So bank making lots of loans. Bank, I think bank credit did expand in 2022. Uh, it may not going forward. We'll see. Yeah, so, so how do you define deflationary money? Did we have it in 2022? Do we have it now? Will we have it more in the
1: future? Yeah, we think about, to me, deflationary money is interruption in the circulation of money and credit. It's not about the stock, it's about the circulation. Because you can have all the money in the world like in the early 1930s, there was tons of gold, it just didn't move. And because it didn't move, it's not being used, the economy just fell apart. And that led to deflationary economy, which is falling consumer and wholesale and producer and every other, every other sort of real economy prices. So to me, deflationary money is something that impedes or interrupts the circulation of money and credit that eventually might lead to, if it's allowed to go too far, All of those nasty consequences in the real economy, as we said before, what the Fed is trying to do, stop deflationary money from spilling over into the real economy, that then becomes what I think most people associate with deflation, which is falling consumer prices. So deflationary money is a monetary problem that if left unchecked will lead to deflation in the real economy in the most extreme cases. Now, what is deflationary money? Again, if it's an interruption in the circulation, it doesn't necessarily have to be a contraction, it doesn't necessarily have to be a complete, you know, complete lockdown or a complete shutdown of the system. It could just be something that is causing it to not circulate enough money and credit, given a level of demand. So, if demand for money and credit is up here, but the circulation and supply is down here, you could have deflationary money, even though it's expanding, because you're ha- you're leading to uh, all sorts of problems where we have to compete for credit and money. The price goes up. There's distortions in that respect. Heightened demand for collateral (laughs) above and beyond what there should be, uh, which causes all sorts of problems. So in 2022, even though lending went up, I don't think it went up as much as the uh, nominally inflationary economy. I don't think it was inflation, but the nominally growing economy actually needed for it to continue to grow. So it was modestly deflationary last year. And I think this year it's becoming even more deflationary where we're seeing major interruptions in the circulation of money and flow of credit. Of course, that's what we've been talking about for the last hour, right? Jack is yeah. all of those types of, of situations. So modestly deflationary money, which caused the markets to say, "Oh boy, this there's trouble up ahead here." And that's why we saw the inversions because modestly deflationary money was interpreted to interpreted as next year could be really bad, or even this year. So you know, sometimes it could really lead to some some really high probable nasty scenarios. So. Yeah, I think we had deflationary money last year, and I think we have a little bit more of it this year. And hopefully, we can avoid the worst of it the, the rest of this year into next year. But you look at what, the way the markets are trading; it's it's we're still looking at the same type of situation.
0: And when you say the markets are trading, you're pr- primarily talking about short-term interest rate spreads, inversions, stuff, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, the, the again the uh, all the symptoms of bearish turns that you would see in a yield curve or a money curve, where you know you don't want to see them inverted at all, but we, you know. It's, even today they're just epic levels of inversion stuff that I mean we didn't even see in 2007 and 2008 there is a lot there's there's, there's a lot of uns I wouldn't call it uncertainty, there's a lot of almost near certainty about the fact that um at some point we still don't know when timing is always the issue but at some point money the the monetary deflation spills over into the real economy and it just leads to all the bad consequences so the markets are as as sure today as they were before mid March, that these things are going to continue to happen.
0: And you said we're seeing things now that we didn't see in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. What, what what would be an example of that?
1: Uh, for example, in eurodollar futures, which is a curve that I always look at. You look at some of the moves last month. Uh, I think it was March fifteenth. I want to say the fifteenth. You saw a just massive swing in hedges, so that the yield curve, the eurodollar curve inversions which were already extreme, became even more extreme. Some of those spreads got to be so enormous that you know, we didn't even see those, those types of extremes in 2007 leading up to what became the global monetary crisis. So in March, in, in last month, we had the, the curve moves and the curve moves, contract moves, price moves, distortions, upsets, inversions that just historic level stuff.
0: Yeah, right. And I think I saw that, yeah, March 10th was Silicon Valley Bank failed. And the week after that, very strange things going on in the bond market that indicated market stress and people having to unwind position. I think the the, the sort of betting that rates would just go super high, that was a crowded trade that had to be unwound very quickly and then that' sort of cascaded uh, when you say euro dollar futures Jeff so there's a euro dollar system on which you know you are an expert and people should ch- check out your your work and your YouTube channel your you know, euro dollar university the offshore dollar system and that is different than euro dollar futures which are you know, uh, uh, bets on the future of LIBOR um, you know London bank you know that, that that's sort of the, the rates there. Isn't it true that LIBOR is in the process of being phased out and that those futures
1: won't be trading soon? No, they're going to continue to trade, but they'll be trading on term SOFR. they've already they've already made up the adjustment factor and so on June thirtieth when they stop pricing LIBOR when the intercontinental exchange does, they'll just be based on term SOFR. so they'll kind of roll over at that point point. Um, and then the euro dollar futures will will just become um, SOFR futures essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, But, you know, that's a good distinction. The Eurodollar system doesn't care. The Eurodollar system is still there. The Eurodollar futures were just a way to price systemic conditions in the Eurodollar system. So what the government has said is we don't want to use LIBOR to price systemic conditions in the Eurodollar system. We're going to use this other benchmark. So we're changing the benchmark, which I think is a real big mistake. But either way, we're changing the benchmark with how we monitor conditions and stresses and strains and prices Fundamental prices in this eurodollar system that that is that is going to continue operating for the foreseeable future, unfortunately. Mm.
0: Thanks, uh, Jeff. I want to propose a counter theory, a theory about oh, actually the uh, inversion and the huge preference for short-term treasuries, one-month treasuries over uh, term equivalents. Is not indicated of you know we're at a bearish moment. Uh, there's going to be a coming credit crunch of actually about the debt ceiling. So there will become a day uh, at which the Treasury will, you know, and I, as people can tell, I'm not an expert on this, but the, the Treasury will run out of money and Congress will have to raise the debt ceiling. And if it doesn't do that, uh, people who own Treasuries are at the risk of uh, def- not being paid, but not being uh, they'll have to wait you know t- to be paid. So it's a lot of uncertainty. So. So the theory goes, and again, I'm not doing a good job of articulating, I should cover it more on this channel. The the theory goes that there's a preference for paper for treasuries that will mature before that happens. So that is why, you know, and I guess in other words, if there wasn't a debt ceiling, the whole curve would be trading like the one month, I I guess that's the thing. What do you say about that theory?
1: Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) Because we've been through these debt ceilings before. And that's not the way the market reacts to it what really happens is really the only counter, the only participants who are worried about the debt ceiling are money market funds because a money market fund has a fiduciary responsibility not to break the buck. And we saw the consequences of what that happens, you know, what happens when that happens many years ago. So money market funds will look at their their portfolio. If they have any treasury bills that look like they might mature around where the debt ceiling gets breached, they'll sell them. They'll get out of those treasury bills because they'll say, I can't own those treasury bills on the infinitesimally small chance that something does happen. Not even a default, as you said, Jack, maybe the treasury has to delay a payment. That could be catastrophic for a money market fund. So money market funds are understandably careful about the debt ceiling. So what they'll do is, they'll yes, they'll preference bills that are either Shorter term in nature that will that will mature before the debt ceiling is or before the treasury is projected around a cash. They'll also buy longer ta- longer dated bills when it's projected to be very likely that the debt ceiling will be raised because we all know it will be. This is all just a political farce. It's really stupid anyway. So mm-hmm. there's really just an issue about that narrow window where there's some uncertainty there, but that doesn't lead to this massive drop in bill yields. We saw this happen in 2011. 2011 was a perfect example because we had the same types of conditions. Not only did we have the debt ceiling, which was an even bigger problem in, in 2011. Remember, 2011 was one of the biggest, uh, you know, it was one of the most, most uh, consequential games of debt ceiling chicken we've ever seen. In fact, it led to the, the, the downgrade in the U.S. debt. Um, at the same time, though, before all that happened, we had all sorts of collateral problems. They called it the European debt crisis, but it was really a collateral shortage And in the early months of 2011, really around April into May, we saw Treasury bill prices fall. They didn't have far to go at that time because everything was close to zero. But in some cases, the the four-week Treasury bill rate was right at zero. And some of them were probably negative along the way. So massive demand for collateral before we ever got to the debt ceiling. And then when we got to July, when the debt ceiling got to be a big problem, what did you see? You saw Treasury bill yields suddenly spike. Because then it was like, oh my God, maybe this debt ceiling won't be uh, resolved in the way we think it was. So, in the week leading up to July 29th, is when the agreement was announced, uh, when the agreement was reached and announced, even four week Treasury bill yields sur- jumped up to about, I think, 16 or 17 basis points. So, you see, basically, the demand for bills ahead of the debt ceiling had nothing to do with the debt ceiling. And then when the debt ceiling becomes most un- uh, uncertain, you'll see bill yields rise, not fall. And then as soon as the debt ceiling agreement was reached in July 29th, by August, I think it was first, bill yields went right back down to where they were beforehand. So to me, there is nothing except for one little thing. There's nothing in the debt ceiling what we're seeing in the Treasury bills. The one thing that we might be seeing is that the Treasury Department, in order to get ready for the debt ceiling, because they can't just say that it's going to be raised, they have to they have to take measures ahead of time, they are cutting back on the supply of Treasury bills. The four-week and eight-week auction, the four-week auction that was conducted just yesterday, they only sold 50 billion instead of the 60 billion the week before. So they're constraining supply, which obviously doesn't help with prices. But it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't explain the fact that the uh the yields and the demand for bills is just through the roof. So the debt ceiling stuff, the the uh, the lack of supply that I mean even that is probably not that much of a factor because the late December into January there was only 45 billion in bills. So they were selling fewer bills last year, and we didn't see those extreme amounts of price swings. didn't they see the, didn't see these extreme levels of demand. So I don't know. I don't see the debt ceiling as part of is even a really even a small part of what we're seeing in the bill market. It's it's one of those things where you would think that uh, if money market funds had the ability to go in the reverse repo, they would just avoid bills and therefore would be less demand for them. So the rates would rise as they have in other debt ceiling periods. I mean, think back to October of 2013, to a lesser extent in September of 2017. That's what you see when you get to these debt ceiling periods. Um, you know, rates, bill yields jump, and then demand for bills is really independent of the debt ceiling uh, issue. Mm, makes sense,
0: oh, definitely over my head. Well, um, Jeff, people should uh, check you out on Euro Dollar University, uh, your YouTube page, Eurodollar University, and on, on uh, Twitter. As folks can see, you post regularly uh, at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. Jeff, if you could just uh, summarize, you know, in a minute or so, your views on what the yield curve signals about a uh, potential credit crunch and deflationary money.
1: You know, in just very simple terms, what the yield curve inversion has always implied, because it's, you know, look at euro dollar futures, for example, because it's tied to three-month LIBOR, it's basically a reflection of where money rates are going to be in the future, which that has a heavy component of what the Federal Reserve policy is going to be. So in very simple terms, the market was betting more and more strenuously That something was going to happen, or several somethings were going to happen, that would force rates to go lower, whether the Federal Reserve wants them to go lower or not. And that really, the the more the Fed, the more hawkish the Fed became, the more it talked about its reaction function solely in uh, in the context of inflation and consumer prices. That meant it would have to be an even bigger something to turn the Fed around. And as time progressed. The markets became even more more certain, didn't matter what consumer prices were doing at any given moment in time, that something or combinations of something would happen. And as I said before, we continue to see all the reasons why that would be continue to pile up. So where the markets are now are saying that we are almost certain that rate cuts are going to start in the near future and that the second half of this year will, will contain a rapid series of rate cuts and so we just have to, we have to backfill in our minds what that would be. What is it that would cause the Federal Reserve to start rapidly cutting rates when they're saying we have no intention of cutting rates at all in the near future at, for anything? And that really gets us into exactly what we've been talking about here. You've got an economy that's shaky, maybe moving into a mild recession, as the Federal Reserve admits, and you pile onto that a credit crunch and a bunch of liquidity problems. That would get you into exactly what the markets are, are preparing for.
0: There we go. Jeff, thanks so much for sharing your insights and thanks everyone for watching.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jack. Great to see you again.
0: Forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Check out today's sponsor, public.com, at public.com slash forward guidance. That's public.com slash forward guidance. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again, and be well.